your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 5. We'll spend a little time thinking about Jesus' words here. I knew that I should say no about 30 seconds after the phone rang. The voice on the other end was almost panicked. We need you, he said. We need you. And I knew that I had a, a busy Sunday coming, but but I listened. And, and I'll admit, the guy, he appealed to my vanity a little bit. We need you. There's other folks we could call, but we need you. I was used to getting a phone call from this guy. He was a funeral home director next to a church where I pastored. And it's unbelievable the amount of people that would um, have their funeral services there at this particular funeral home that didn't know any pastors. And so because of my relationship with some of the people that worked there, I kind of became the on-call guy. So it wasn't unusual for him to call me at strange times and ask me to officiate a service. But it was very unusual for him to be this panicked. We will, he said. We'll, we'll schedule it around your time. Whenever you can be there, they'll have the service. We just need you to come. Being a little older now, I know in those situations to ask more questions. But instead, I said, okay, 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon, I can be there. Great, I'll tell the family. We need you to be here at 1.30, you know, and I'll go through all those kind of things. So, so we get there, and he... he gives me a little side hug and this guy never did that and he led me into the room to talk to a gentleman he's a young guy who was now a widower his wife had just suddenly passed away and he looked like he was in shock but it didn't take about 30 seconds for him to start wailing I mean tearing into his mother-in-law and his wife had just died and she was young and she she was diabetic and she didn't do a good job taking care of herself and and he was sad about that but then he tell me but my mother-in-law thinks it's my fault she's always thought I was no good and and she's just this and she's just that and I mean I'll tell you it's not my fault and just on and on and on and on and on I'm like okay um, so I kept trying to ask him some questions I got this belief that whether you know the person that's passed away or not, when you're officiating a funeral, you've got to be able to find something good about the dearly departed or nobody's going to listen to anything else you have to say. So I, it took me a while to, to get him to say some good things about his wife, but he had a whole catalog of bad things to say about his mother-in-law and his sister's-in-law. And so I just kind of did the best I could, and I was walking out of the room. The funeral home director came, and he said, okay, we got to go to the got to go to this other room. I said, what for? I, I need to go put some thoughts together before this message. And he said, well, we got to go talk to the family. I said, it's what we just did. He said, no, no, that was one half of the family. You need to go to this other room to talk to the other half of the family because we have to keep them separate. And then it began to dawn on me why he called me. So we get into the other room, and guess who's sitting there? The mother-in-law. And the sisters-in-law. And they were sad and, and upset at the loss of their loved one. And, 
and they began to tell me that for a few seconds and then they said but it's her worthless husband's fault and then she turned on me because I talked to him first to which I just blamed it on the funeral home director because I didn't know there was two rooms and so she spent all the time she could tell me what a no good scoundrel it was and how it was how it was his fault and he had told me about how it was her fault and then just all those kind of things and we we come into the chapel and and she sits on one side and he sits on the other and and I'm sitting there before I say anything going man I don't know they do not prepare you in seminary what you do if a fight breaks out of you I think it's coming So I stood up and I said, you know, none of us want to be here today. And as I said that, a lady sitting to my right on the second row took off out of the and ran to the back of the chapel. And she started pulling the door. And I mean, she was pulling the door. I thought the whole chapel was going to fall. And she could not get the door open. And then she started beating on the door, screaming, Let me out of here! Let me out of here! And, and the funeral home director came and pushed the door open. You know, she was trying to pull it open. He pushed it open. And I wanted to say, Hey, man, can you just leave that door open? Because really, I want to go with her. And it was the strangest, just filled with so much tension, service that I can hardly ever remember and I remember getting in my car because we were going to be in the possession to go to the burial service and I remember getting my car sitting down and thinking that was just so ugly it's just so ugly at an occasion like that it's just so ugly I've been thinking about that a lot lately because that scene was just so ugly kind of sounds like 2020 kind of sounds like life here in McMinn County in 2021 we're living in what some people have called an age of outrage and I believe it you know why because I've been to Walmart lately I've seen people fussing because there's not enough cashiers and then fussing at the cashiers that they have my wife saw this poor little guy had his first job at, at a local grocery store and somebody you know, was checking out the groceries and he forgot to ring up the water that was on the bottom. He got a case of water, forgot to ring it up, had to go back and, and ring it up. And the, the people in line were just throwing a fit. You know, just, how dare you? We shouldn't have to wait. You're so stupid. All this kind of stuff. It's just, just so ugly. And then you get in your cars and you know, what's well, not even better. There's people upset because you're going too slow there's people upset because you're going too fast all of us are upset because you leave your blinker on turn it off if you're not turning there's arguments on the street there's arguments in the home there's arguments in the job there's arguments everywhere and sometimes aren't you just overcome by the ugliness and you just just don't you just sometimes think isn't there a different way isn't there a better way to live isn't there another another way to live and be in the world where God has placed us there is 
And it's a vision of life given to us by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus himself. And here in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew has, has driven, driven us to a fever pitch here. There's a lot of, a lot of wonderful things that have taken place in, gospel, in Matthew's Gospel already. There's an amazing virgin birth that incites the praise of angels for a group of shepherds. There's this man, Jesus, who goes to this wild-eyed, funny-dressed preacher, his cousin, John the Baptist. And he goes through baptism. Not that he needs to be baptized, but he wants to identify with those who do. And as he comes out from the water of his baptism, the Spirit descends and the Father himself speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And, and every verse is revealing for us more and more, this is the Messiah who has come. This is the conqueror who will win. This is the one we've been waiting for. And immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he has an epic showdown with Satan all those that have gone before him Adam Moses the children of Israel they've all failed in the wilderness and he triumphs temptation after temptation he resists he wins he triumphs and Satan flees for a time and then he comes and he ascends a mountain and he sits down as the authoritative teacher he is. And he's about to give a manifesto of living for the king, life in the kingdom. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ in an age of outrage? And he starts the sermon off with a blessing. This opening section of the sermon is often called the Beatitudes. It is Jesus... Jesus casting a vision for what it means to, to live a fruitful life, to live a blessed life. The very structure of the Beatitudes are revealing to us. While Jesus shows us a way to be and live in the world as servants of the kingdom, a way that is fruitful, a way that is blessed, a way that will be filled with happiness, it is a way that will also be filled with pain. The flourishing, the rejoicing of the follower of Christ in this life will be a flourishing and a rejoicing not out of conflict, not out of trouble, not out of pain, but through it. And so he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who have looked at the majesty and wonder and holiness of God and seen the sinfulness within themselves. And they've come to the end of themselves and they know their only hope is to plea for the mercy of God. To those who are poverty stricken in spirit, he says, theirs is the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. For those who look at the sinfulness in their own life, who look at the sinfulness that surrounds them, don't try to justify themselves by comparing them to others or, or don't try to make excuses. They're in the presence of God, broken over their sinfulness, broken over the sinfulness they see. They're driven to mourning. 
he says, they're going to be comforted. The implication being they're going to be comforted by God himself. But we are told that he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Those who are humble, those who bring all of their strength and ability under the control of Christ, they're meek. They have a great inheritance of the earth. Those who long, those who hunger, those who thirst for righteousness in their own life and in the world where they live, where they want to see God come make it right, they long, they yearn for righteousness. He says, they're going to be satisfied. Those who, when they are wronged, remain merciful. They will receive mercy. Those who do the hard work of the pursuit of holiness and purity of heart, they're the ones who are going to see God. But it's this one here in verse 9 that seems particularly striking for our age of outrage. Blessed are the peacemakers. The very word peace almost makes you hopeful, doesn't it? almost makes you think that peace is out there because it is. As Christians, we know in a very real and powerful way the multidirectional peace of God. We know that through Christ we are at peace with God. Our sins are forgiven and the barriers are removed and we can come into a right relationship with God. We know what it's like to have the hostility of our rebellion against our Creator covered by the blood of Christ. We know what it's like to be at peace with God. But the Bible also tells us as believers that we can have the peace of God as we live. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 that if we spend time in prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, if we pour our hearts out to Christ in prayer, that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We as followers of Christ have peace. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. But this verse calls us to something greater. It calls us to have that peace overflowing in our life that we become peacemakers. That we become the kind of people who God can use to soothe hostilities. We become the kind of people that God can use to bring reconciliation. That we can become the kind of people that in our presence, folks can finally take a deep and relaxing breath. Just in case they're here, don't call out any names. But how many of you know what it's like to be constantly surrounded by a contentious person? You know what it's like to be around a contentious person? Someone that always wants to fight? Someone who always wants to find something wrong? Some who, someone who always wants to point out your deficiencies or things like that? Have you noticed around that person that you start to get a little tense? Have you noticed around that person that you're on guard, you're really careful about what you say? Have you, have you noticed you find yourself wanting to not be around that person? You know what it's like to be around a contentious person? God calls his people in an age of outrage to be like a breath of fresh air. 
our family has a series of weird television shows that we like. One of my favorite is about a detective who's got OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is no joke. If you if you know anybody or have known anybody that's got OCD, I mean that's that's a serious thing. But it works in this show because the detective is so quirky. I mean, all of us are quirky. And we can identify with the quirkiness. And so some of the things he does, you know, we say, hey, that's you. Or well, so that's kind of what we do anyway. It's probably not the most edifying. But, but the thing that makes him amazing as a detective is that he notices everything. He sees anything that's out of place. He notices what people say. He notices how they dress. He notices everything. And because he notices everything, he sees what most people miss. And he's able to solve the case. At the same time, the gift is also a curse because he sees everything. In particular, he sees dirt. So he's constantly cleaning. He constantly sees the dirt. He's, he's constantly avoiding things. He's, he's constantly terrified. And then there's this one episode where his greatest nightmare comes true. He lives in a big city. And all of the sanitation workers, those who are collecting the garbage, go on strike. And for days and weeks, the garbage is piling up. And he's starting to go insane. He says, I can feel the dirt, the smell, the smell. And they call him in. There's a murder case that's keeping the labor union and the city from working out a contract so the garbage is piling up. And they call him in to solve the case. And slowly but surely as the episode goes on, he's going more and more insane. You know, he takes up all of his garbage, puts it neatly in boxes, and mails it to his therapist. <laughs> When he finally loses touch with reality, he steals a garbage truck and decides he's going to clean up the whole city himself. He's going to throw all the garbage in the truck, drive the truck into the ocean, and let the city start over. I mean, he's just, he's becoming unhinged, and he's having these crazy theories, and he's just laying on the ground and all this kind of stuff. And his friend, the captain of police, picks him up and says, come on, you're coming with me. And the next scene they go into, the detective and the captain walk into this exquisitely white room and they've got on hazmat suits and they sit down and the te detective says you know where you are he says no and the detective's got a, a friend that works in the computer industry and when they're testing out new products they have to have an extremely environmentally controlled room and he explains that to him he says do you know where you are he says, you are in the cleanest room in the entire city. And his whole body goes. And he starts smiling. He says, I can feel my head clearing. You know that? Is the effect you're supposed to have in your family. This, the effect you're supposed to have in your workplace. The effect you're supposed to have when you deal with other image bearers of the Lord God that you as an ambassador of the Prince of Peace 
where tension constricts and breeds more anger. Your presence is supposed to be that relaxing. It's peacemaker. But you know what? Being a peacemaker is hard work. Because if you've ever been involved in trying to help two people come to terms, you ever been involved when you're the peacemaker, you know what can happen every now and then? Two people that don't agree on anything can suddenly can agree on one thing. Neither one of them like you. Being a peacemaker is really, really, really hard work. So why would Jesus call us to it? He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will relieve the they will receive the greatest title that any human being can ever receive. You may have a lot of titles. Friend, spouse, father, son, daughter. You have a lot of wonderful titles. But there's not a greater title that any human can receive than child of God. Those peacemakers who represent the God of peace spread peace where they go. And they are called and owned by their Father as children of God. But they also have this noticeable family resemblance that makes them stand out wherever they go. I have a wonderful, I'm at a wonderful age. I'm at a wonderful place. I've got a lot of awesome opportunities around me all the time. But one of the most unique things is I've got a college student now, a high school student, and a middle school student right on the edge of rocketing into high school. Which means a lot of the people that I went to high school with have kids around the same age. Which means they send some of them to the school where I serve, which means I get to see their kids in action. And what is so bizarre? We got this one kid in our school. He's got the goofiest laugh, just like his daddy had. We got kids in our school, they walk funny, just like their mom did. We got kids I went I mean I went to school with I saw their parents in high school. And now I'm seeing their parents again in high school is what it seems like, you know. And every now and then they'll come up to me and say, Well, how did Johnny do? Or how did Susie do? I'm like, well, let me tell you, partner, there is no denying that kid belongs to you. They talk like you, walk like you, do all the weird goofy stuff. One of them dances like their daddy did. I mean, it's just the family resemblance is unmistakable. And what Jesus is saying here is when we are peaceful people bringing peace, people are supposed to look at us and say, man, alive, the family resemblance to your heavenly father is unmistakable. And what happens when a group of people start living like that in an age of outrage? Let me tell you. When that funeral service was over, and I was sitting in my car and we're about to follow the hearse 
down to the graveside service, I was exhausted. As a matter of fact, I made a declaration right there in my car. I said, there is a McDonald's that I've got to pass on the way home. And if, by God's grace, that ice cream machine is actually working, I'm getting me a chocolate milkshake, baby. And I'm drinking on the way home. I am not bringing Kim one drop of it. I'm not bringing the Kims any of it. This is my milkshake, and I have earned it. And that thought, let me tell you, that thought was the only thing powered me through. I wish I had something more spiritual to say, like the Lord carried me. Well, the Lord promised me a milkshake that I was getting when this is over. Because the graveside service was worse. Because there wasn't pews to divide them. And so mother-in-law had to sit by son-in-law surrounded by brothers and sister-in-law peering down at this guy and the tension was just almost radiating off this. So I said a few words and, and prayed and got out of Dodge. And so I was there at my car. Milkshake was in sight. I looked back and this widower, it finally hit him. He was going home alone. And there's a wooden box holding the remains of his wife who was about to be planted in the dirt. And he broke. And he just started weeping. He just started just, just crumpling over. And so I thought, well, I guess I should go try to comfort him. And before I could make it, I got passed by one of his sisters-in-law who is walking with blinding fury. I mean, her head down, her arms pumping. You know, it looked like some of those people that do their exercise in the mall, you know, just and she gets up there and I thought, oh no, she's going to throw him in the hole. We're going to have to do another funeral. Has anybody got cell service out here? Because we're going to have to play. She's about to do him in. And she came and she looked like she was going to steamroll this guy. And she got up next to him and she grabbed his shoulders and turned him to her. And then in a moment, she pulled him in. And next thing you know, the other sisters-in-law, brothers-in-law, and lo and behold, even his mother-in-law came and grieved. And I thought driving away, as ugly as it was, that's beautiful. Doesn't the world need to see a little more of that kind of beauty this week? Maybe, maybe there's somebody in your life you need to more move toward. Maybe there's some folks you need to invite over. Maybe you just need to decide you're going to be the different one in an age of outrage that's sure could use to see a little more beauty. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God.
heaven. It's so much easier to be outraged, I know. I've got a PhD in that. But oh, for the beauty of Christ. Redeeming and reconciling love that brings us peace. May we be better ambassadors of peace.